from Acts 17, verses 22 through 28. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope they, that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Glad to see all of you here this morning. I've often said that one of the problems, one of the main problems with having a rapid speaking delivery the way I do, is sometimes I say things that I haven't even thought of yet. And last Sunday morning was an example of that. I need to begin the lesson this morning with a correction from last Sunday morning. If you were listening carefully, or even if you weren't, here's what I said. In our lesson regarding Christianity, the real thing, in point number four, I said that, uh, that we are not motivated by love which is exactly the opposite of what I intended to say. The point should have been we're not motivated by money. And if you understand what Paul was saying, if I understand what Paul was saying in the Second Corinthians passage, uh, he was talking about not peddling the word of God for gain, and that was the point. But anyway, that's a rather egregious error, and I wanted to begin with, uh, with that correction, that redaction, and that apology. I guess it really is true that the experts say that we only use 10% of our brain. Imagine what I could do if I use the other 60%. <laughs> Speaking of using our brains, the greatest thought that man can embrace is God. A corollary to that is that whenever we open our Bibles, whatever it is that we read on the pages is greater than our own thinking because it issued from and originated in the mind of God. These are, I want to remind you, the words of God through the inspired writers that you and I are reading and studying this day. Our very lives are but an outgrowth of whatever our concept of God is. It, it informs our entire worldview. Or as Paul states in our text in the very last verse, verse 28, in him we, we live and we move and we have our very being. Some people, J.B. Phillips said in his little book entitled, Your God is Too Small, some people think of God as the old man in the sky. And he said if that's what people think about God, then that's going to obviously affect their relationship to God. They're not going to take him very seriously. After all, he's just a tottering old man sitting on a throne somewhere up in the sky. Other people think of, of God as some kind of divine tyrant who's looking for an excuse to condemn us. 
And if it's very difficult, I su suggest to have a healthy relationship to God if that's your idea, that God is just looking for some minor infraction so that he can give us a citation and a condemnation. And still others think of God as the celestial creator of this grand universe in which we live. And so they seek to serve him as such. And if so, they're going to have a healthy relationship because that's how the Bible reveals the God that you and I worship, that we talk about, and that we follow on a daily basis. And then there's others, sadly, that don't think of God at all, and their lives reflect that neglect. But however you slice it, Christianity is a God religion. It is, by its very nature, theocentric. And this morning, I want to spend just a few minutes talking about this God and our concept and, and what the Bible reveals about him and some of the major attributes that you and I can really sink our teeth into and help us when we leave this place to be able to follow that God more closely and more faithfully. You can't say two sentences about the Christian religion without mentioning the name of God. And that's for reasons that are so obvious, I'm not going to even mention them. Even the Egyptian Pharaoh, we remember in the Old Testament, was impressed by and recognized the power of what he called the God who has no name. Surely the supreme personality of the Bible is the sovereign God. But what does the Bible teach us about God who loves us, who has provided for our salvation? Well, among other things, the Bible tells us that God is active. When you open your Bible to the very first chapter, the very first page of the very first book, the Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the universe. You can't get any more active than that. God was active in the creation of everything that we see, that we know, and that we are. And then it closes with this warning in the very last book of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 19, says at least in part, and if any man will take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will, here's the active part, take away his part out of the book of life. So we need to be very serious in our approach to this book that God gave us. But more specifically this morning, I want us to ask this question. What does Jesus tell us about the God we serve? I want to suggest two or three things for your consideration. First of all, Jesus tells us that God will run. In the famous prodigal son's parable in Luke chapter 15, you may remember Jesus clearly presents the real hero in that story, and that is God the Father. If you read that story, if you read that parable, and you come away failing to appreciate the fact that the father in that story represents God, then you've really missed the thrust of the entire par parable because that's what it's all about. He willingly gave his son what was coming to him in terms of the entitled inheritance. That's made clear in verse 12. He didn't ask any questions. He didn't pose any arguments. He just gave his son a third of everything that he and his wife had worked for all these years. And then he anxiously awaited the return of his son. Verse 20 makes that clear. Scanning the horizon daily, hoping and praying that his son would come home. He didn't go and bail out his son from the difficulties of the far country. That tells us something about the nature of God. It certainly tells us something about the nature of a loving and a compassionate father. He knew that there were some lessons that his son needed to learn that could only be learned in a hog pen. And so he allowed his son to experience what the, the law of natural consequences is all about. He allowed his son to suffer because of the choices that he made. But what he did do was when his son returned home with a broken and a contrite heart, the Bible tells us that he ran and he fell on his neck and he welcomed him home. Contemplation of that scene caused John Newton to write the following words that we have sung through the years. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found. 
was blind, but now I see. That which was lost in that parable, of course, was a man's son. And God responds to the returning prodigal just like God, not like a man. He has no human pride to swallow when he forgives us. He's not trying to save face. He's only concerned about our greatest welfare and about our coming home. In fact, he runs to meet the prodigal son or daughter. Now, I don't know if this kind of gives us a little bit of color to the story. If you understand, if you realize that in the first century world, the heads of families simply were not seen running in public. That was a social taboo. Now, even today, if you see someone in a $2,000 business suit, you know, and, and, and nice uh, shoes that cost $500, and you see him running down the street in Montgomery, Alabama, you would think, well, you know, get a little dignity about you, won't you? In the first century, they could magnify that by about 100. You simply did not run in public if you were the head of a family. And that's one of the reasons why I think in this story that God is pictured here as running to meet his long-lost son. He loves him. He willingly forgives him when he returns home. And that thought is absolutely incredible. The fatted calf, the shoes, the robe, the ring, all for me, unworthy son, but sweeter to me, the most wonderful thing, God ran to meet me. I saw God run. Jesus tells us in the first place that God will run. Secondly, that God will walk. If you continue in that parable, you know that we don't have to read far into the story of the prodigal son to know who the real villain is. A Sunday school teacher asked her class about who was it that hated to see the return of the prodigal son the very most, and a little boy raised his hand, piped up, and said, the fatted calf? <laughs> and, and that may well be true. No doubt about that. But we also know from what Scripture tells us that it was true of the older brother. He's the real villain of the story. In fact, it's been observed that in reality there were two prodigal sons in this story. One of them went to the far country and one of them stayed at home. If you got your Bible, turn for a moment to that passage in Luke chapter 15. I want to read two or three verses starting with verse 25. Now his older brother was in the field and as he came near the, to the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he, that is the servant, said to him, Your brother is come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. And the first part of verse 28 says, But he was angry and would not go in. I mean, you read that paragraph, and we immediately dislike this fellow. He throws his famous temper tantrum out in the yard. He refuses to even enter the house where the prodigal brother is, and he certainly is not going to join in the celebration for his, his brother coming home. Because that's not something that he's going to celebrate. That's not something that he's happy about. And so the father says about his older son, just forget about this guy. My favorite son is home anyway. We're not going to worry about old pout face over there. No, that's not what the father says. The, neither of the sons is seen as his favorite son. One of the things that impresses me most about this powerful story is that the father loves both of his sons and you and I read this story in the 21st century world, and we wonder, how in the world could he ever love either one of them? But see, this parable is revealing God. It's showing something about his heart. And the Bible says he, he leaves his newly found son, and he walks out into the night. Look at the latter part of verse 28. To plead with his indignant oldest son, God is not only willing to run, he's also willing to walk. And I find that incredible. 
He's willing to go out and walk and plead when necessary, and he does that so graphically in this story. In the third place, I suggest that God will stoop. Turn your Bible to John chapter 13 for just a moment. John chapter 13. This is just before Jesus is about to die. They're having a supper. It's the last supper that Jesus will ever be a part of with his disciples. John's disciples are, are there, or Jesus' disciples rather, are holding a Muhammad Ali conference because what they're arguing about is who is the greatest. Can you imagine how Jesus could have reacted to that emotionally? Here he is about to die. He's about to go in and tell his disciples that he's about to die. He's told them that several times. I can't stay with you forever. But now it's going to become very, very clear that his time here on earth is very limited and he's going to be involved in the last Passover supper that he will ever eat with these disciples. And here they are sitting off in a corner somewhere talking about which one of us is the greatest, which one of us deserves the right-hand station at the side of Jesus. Look at verse 1, if you will, John 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having, and here it is, this is the heart of this whole incident, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Some verses say he loved them to the utmost. And then verse 2, see who was among that number. And supper being ended, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. If you want to get the full emotional, psychological, and spiritual impact of what's going on here, you simply have to realize that when Jesus takes the towel and begins to wash his disciples' feet, Judas is one of them. And Jesus knows what Judas is about to do, that he's about to betray our Lord, and yet he's one of the ones that Jesus gets down and washes between the toes of those disciples. And then verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and that he was going to God. So Jesus knows that his time is at hand. This would be a good time for a tribute supper, would it not? Wouldn't this be a wonderful time for the disciples to tell Jesus how much he had meant to them during his three-and-a-half-year personal ministry? How close their association had become? And how that he was more to them than just a Messiah, a Savior, that he was also their friend? Is that what happens? No, they, spend their time, they don't spend their time telling all the good things they know about Jesus and giving him a plaque at the end of the ceremony that's inscribed with a sentimental message about how much you've meant to us. Look again at verses 4 and 5. They rose, he arose from the supper, and he laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. I mean, that is the very last thing. Unless we had read this passage before, that's the last thing that we would have guessed that would have taken place at the last Passover that Jesus would observe with his disciples. It's just telling us that in the hour of his betrayal, in the night of his arrest and his ultimate death on that Roman cross, Jesus' thoughts were on serving his disciples. And I don't know how you react to that, but to me that's mind-boggling. To see that Jesus wanted to impress his disciples with this singular act of service and that when he left this earth, when he died on the cross, they're going to be thinking about, well, we didn't give him a plaque. I'm sorry about it. No, they're going to be thinking about, he got down on his feet. God made flesh, and he washed my feet. He takes a towel. He wraps it around his waist. He stoops down on his knees, and he washes the dirty feet of his disciples, including those of Judas, and that is mind-boggling. Here we find a supreme example of Christian service. And no wonder the Lord ends this 
by telling those disciples, now you go and do likewise. That doesn't mean, as some have interpreted it, that you need to go wash other people's feet, but that you need to have this same spirit and attitude of service. You need to have a servant's heart. You need to be willing to serve other people. The way up is down in the kingdom of Christ, and you need to become someone who is vying for not the throne, but for the towel. That's where you'll find greatness in the kingdom. Think about that for a moment. One of the last pictures of Jesus on earth is God made flesh on his knees washing feet. God with a towel, not, not a king sitting on a throne, but a God reaching for the towel. And that's wonderful, that God will stoop. And again, so should we. The Bible says, mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Do not be wise in your own conceits, Romans chapter 12, verse 16. And finally, Jesus teaches us about God the Father, that God is not only willing to run and to walk and to stoop, but that God is willing to die. The cross, though constituting a tragic scenario, there's no doubt about what happened on the cross was a tragedy. It is still God's good news because it tells us in actions and not just words what God did for lost men and women at Calvary. Here's the way John summed it up in his first letter, 1 John 4 and verse 9. For in this the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. The only hope that you and I have is Jesus hanging on the cross. The only confidence that you and I have in knowing that someday when our time here on earth is that we will someday live with God in eternity in his presence in paradise is knowing that Jesus was willing to hang on a cross and that's why we come together every Sunday morning and we gather around this table and we remind ourselves and one another of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice. We tell each other maybe not in words, sometimes lyrically in song, that God is willing to die. And he did. God made flesh, died on the cross. You know, the greatest thought in the Old Testament was that man was made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The greatest thought in the New Testament is that God was made flesh. He came in the image of man and dwelt among us and became a servant. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 says... God then served man, and then God died on the cross. Someone, according to the fable, once asked Jesus, how much do you really love me? And Jesus said, I, I love you this much. And he stretched out his arms real wide, and he died. God not only will run to welcome the prodigal back home, and not only will he walk out into the yard to plead with the bitter-hearted, and not only will he stoop to serve, but he will die to save. And I'm here this morning to remind you that that is exactly what he did. But he only died once. You see, in the Old Testament, animal sacrifices had to be offered over and over again. This is a once-for-all sacrifice. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 26, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. That is, if you reject this sacrifice and you sin, there's not going to be another sacrifice. There's never going to be another Messiah. He is the once-for-all sacrifice, and if you reject him, you've rejected all hope for eternity. Not even the cross stood as a barrier to God's goodwill for lost humanity. 
So we have to ask ourselves, in light of these four facts, what kind of God is this? Well, it's, it's not a pagan God that has to be appeased and placated, and it's not an image of wood or stone that has to be molded and shaped by human hands so that we can bow down before that image, but it's a loving Father who redeemed man at the cross. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Will you sing a verse with me? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. God will. No doubt about it. Every page of scripture tells us God will. The question of the hour is, will you? One of the most scathing indictments brought against any people is found in Matthew 23. Listen to verse 37, then we're through. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus says, you who kill the prophets and stone those that were sent to you, how often I would have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. You see, God would, but they wouldn't. And we need to understand that. If we're lost in eternity, we have no one but ourselves to blame. And this morning, if you're not ready to meet God, I hope you'll get ready before this hour ends. Through your faith, your repentance, confession of Jesus as God's Son, and being baptized, immersed in water, to, to have his blood wash your sins away and redeem you from all your transgressions, you can leave this place heaven-bound. While we stand, while we sing.